are jumping back into Ephesians. Yes. So as we hit the summer last year, we put our series at that moment, which was Ephesians, on hold as we transitioned into some other things. And now we're picking up exactly where we left off, going verse by verse through Ephesians. The series is called Geograph- The Geography of Heaven. And I'm going to give us a little bit of catching up on where we were, because many of you may not have been there, or if you are like me, forget what we actually had had been highlighting through the first four chapters, which are going to be very pertinent for what we see today. And so I'm going to read for you the series summary that we had been talking through uh, each week of the series, just to catch us up to speed. Now, we called that series, this series, The Geography of Heaven. The geography of heaven. Geography is inherently tactile. It's gritty. It's rocks. It's earth. Heaven feels very ethereal in our, in our imagination. It feels untouchable, unreachable. But what Ephesians is trying to help us do as Paul is writing about the new life that followers of Jesus have in him with God is to tell us that this is a practical life that we get to live in the kingdom of God here and now. We are seated with God in the heavenly places. That does not mean when you die, you get to go be with God. It means here and now, everything is different. You're living in an alternative reality. And so he's painting for us a topography of what it looks like to be a human being in the presence of God in this world. I just kind of summarized the the whole series description, so I'm not really going to read it anymore. But hopefully what we'll see at the end of this is that heaven and following Jesus floods the mundane, everyday circumstances, cubicles, changing diapers, classrooms, everyday community conflict, and our church gatherings here with beautiful vision of how God is at work among us, bringing about new creation and pressing back darkness and death until one day fully and finally Jesus returns. Amen? That's why we're here. All right. Before we dive into today's text in Ephesians 5, I want to give us a thematic link back into the previous chapters. So throughout Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, is conveying the wonders of what has taken place in the world through the gospel um, of God as Father, Son, and Spirit to bring about heaven on earth. It's as though the invisible reality of what Paul calls the heavenly places have been overlaid upon our mundane, everyday lives. So, what Paul continually refers to throughout the last half of this letter, starting in chapter 4, is this metaphor of walking, learning to walk. And we're going to hear it again today. So I want us to look at the previous four places where the Apostle Paul uses this language so that we would have context before we dive into today's scripture. So, how to walk is one of Paul's preferred metaphors for discipleship to Jesus, learning to live in what we've called the geography of heaven on earth. I'm going to read these passages from Ephesians over you, and then we'll stand all together and read through Ephesians 5. So, first place that Paul speaks of learning how to walk, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. It's Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. 
So Jesus comes to us, we begin to follow him, and suddenly there is a way to live that has come alive to the deeply human purpose of life with God and his agenda instead of our own. Ephesians 4.17, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. Keep in mind that the Ephesians were predominantly Gentiles, which just means non-Jews, those who were apart from the tradition and history and lineage of God's people throughout the Old Testament. So Paul's saying there's a way to live that is beneath what God has called us to, a way that is encompassed by death of being apart from God and God's design and the work of Jesus to sweep us into this with God life. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So it's not only that we don't walk in our old ways, but that we do walk in the ways that we have learned in God. Learning to walk as a new humanity that Jesus has opened to us is rooted in the relational presence of God himself who is love. The Father has loved us as children. And we learn to imitate big brother Jesus as the one who lived a life of sacrificial love for us. Lastly, Ephesians 5, this is the chapter that we're in, but verses 8 through 10. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. So living for ourselves is what Paul calls darkness, but learning to walk as the new humanity in Jesus is an immersion into life as one's committed to pleasing him and not ourselves. And the promise is a life of fruit and fruit that is the bright light of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So learning to walk in the geography of heaven is like learning to walk as a bunch of toddlers in the discipleship school following big brother Jesus. We stumble, we fall, we try and discern, we bump into each other and knock each other over and get rather angry and hurt in the process. But as the church, we're learning. We're learning to walk. And so now we're going to arrive at the text for today. So would you stand with me as we read it? Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21 are printed out in your weekly bulletin. We're going to be reading from the CSB today. Pay careful attention, then, to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most use of the time, because the days are evil. Don't be so don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, right here with us, we want to humble ourselves now to hear your word, 
to listen to the words that you have spoken by your Spirit in the glory of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first have loved us. We yearn to be more like you. We yearn to follow you, to know you with greater intimacy and depth. And we ask you in this moment, this morning, teach us specifically a little bit more about what it means when when the scriptures exhort, call, command us to be filled with your spirit. Have your way among us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. So, if we as human beings were created in the image of and by relational God, Father, Son, and Spirit, each interacting in our salvation and the gospel, sweeping us into their life and love to be lived out together among one another, learning to follow Jesus. It's going to be messy. It's going to be difficult. It means we, we have to learn how to do what Paul talks about with learning to walk. There's a reason that that language is so common in the church. If you've been a Christian for very long, you, you probably are familiar with the nomenclature of in my, how's your walk with Jesus going? It's because it's an everyday kind of thing, and it's a different way of doing what we already learned how to do a long time ago when we were toddlers learning to walk. There's a physical way of walking, but there's also a spiritual way of learning how to walk with God in everyday life, right? Real relationships are the messiest part of life, and learning to walk spiritually with Christ is another way of talking about learning to dwell in the presence of God through all of life. Learning to walk with Him rather than walk apart from Him. As a pastor, I get to hear all the time just about how difficult and messy our relationships are with each other. I hear all the time also about how glorious and amazing our relationships are with one another. And what we see here in Ephesians 5 is Paul pivot in his letter to the church of Ephesus to say, what are the implications of walking with God in the way we live with one another? And so for the next chapter and a half, we're going to be diving into some of the real practical relationships that all of humanity is immersed in. Husbands, wives, community, children, work, bosses, all of that stuff. And how learning to follow Jesus in the life with God affects all of that. What I believe is the most important for us to see today, though, there's one thing, is in this scripture that says, to live as the new humanity within relationships in the way of loving communion requires that we learn to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I don't know about you, but for first 10 years of my being a Christian, being filled with the Spirit was kind of an optional add-on. This mysterious component of what could happen, but as though being a disciple and following Jesus could happen apart from learning to dwell with, be filled by, be led by the Holy Spirit. 
And I mean, books have been written about how overlooked oftentimes the Holy Spirit can be in the Western church, especially within, you know, pop evangelicalism, okay? Francis Chan wrote a really famous book called Forgotten God, trying to highlight some of this reality for us. But here, what we see is the minute that we take the vision of the gospel and we pivot into everyday living, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, couple things that should give us a ton of hope and give me hope in unpacking this. What God commands us to do, he always provides for. What that means is the Spirit is willing to fill you. The Spirit is willing to teach you. We're not talking about an upper echelon Christianity that most of us feel too defeated to even try for. We're talking about the kind of expectation, just like we expect little toddlers who stumble all over the place. I mean, we saw Zoe this morning, the Wens little girl. She's walking around like, like nobody's business. She's totally fine. She's not falling around anymore. Just as we expect that the bumps and bruises come, but that learning to walk will be the norm, so too as we fall and get bumps and bruises, learning to be filled with the Spirit, learning to walk in the power of the Spirit, the expectation of Scripture is maturation in the Spirit, such that choosing to be filled with the Spirit or filled by our flesh is an option in everyday Christian living. So, let's dive in. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, we're going to walk in this passage of Scripture with two guiding words that I think encapsulate all that Paul is saying here. The first one is we need to be surrendered to the Spirit. And the second one is, we need to be soaked in the Spirit. Surrendered and soaked, okay? Look with me at verses 15 through 17. Paul writes, Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most use of the time, sorry, the most of the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul is really simply saying, pay attention. Don't be distracted. Don't be led away from the straight path of following Jesus. Jesus himself had all sorts of teaching about what it's like to follow him. He described a path. He described a gate. He described a way in which we get to follow Jesus. But what happens oftentimes is we just get distracted. I mean, anyone feel like you open your phone because you had some task in mind and then 14 other things happen and suddenly you forgot the real purpose. You even opened up your phone. You put it away and then it's right in front of you, some cue. Oh yeah, I didn't even do it. And then you go back in and it gets you three more times. Like we live in the age of distraction. And so <laughs> it's not new though. It's not new. We've always been easily distractible, you know, like sheep. The metaphor for what it's like to be human. So in the midst of our moment, Paul just simply says, don't live compulsively. Don't live like you're on the hook of the world or of your life, being led to and fro, back and forth. Live as one who is actually paying attention, as though you have purpose in your life. So 
what is it that it looks like to simply pay careful attention, to make the most of the time is another way that Paul says it. Now, there's one way. We have to be careful here. Because when we hear make the most of the time, we can subtly trade the kind of distracted being dragged to and fro in the world for a kind of slavery to efficiency in the name of God. Make the most use of the time. And so there can be this anxiety that says, God wants me to maximize what he's doing through me in everything that I do. And so what we start to do is become enslaved to things that we believe will produce efficiency with the name Christian over the top of it. Now, that's one way that's very normal for us in uh, 21st century Los Angeles to hear, make the most use of the time. Now, we can understand that word in a couple different ways, though, if we think about it. The first one is make the most use of the time in the, in the term of efficiency, like we've said. That requires that we master what one philosopher has called technique. Right? When you think about efficiency, you think about ways or modes of efficiency, we could call that broadly technique. That leads to slavery. Jacques Ellul, a philosopher, wrote, technique has penetrated the deepest recesses of the human being. The machine tends not only to create a new human environment, but also to modify our very essence. The milieu in which we live is no longer ours. We must adapt ourselves as though the world were new, speaking of technology, things like email and the smartphone, which actually originally, when email was created, guess what they projected it would do to the human work week? Reduce it to about eight hours a week. Anyone working a lot less because of the new convenience of email? No, what does it do? It makes you always available. Now we put it on a thing that's in our pockets all the time, and then we let that thing buzz in our pocket when an email comes through, and it's like a taskmaster continually subjecting us to its will and its desire, which is actually dozens of other people's desires and marketers' desires and all of these other things. So that thing that was thought to actually free us into a greater sense of you know, fullness has actually reduced us and enslaved us. Jacques Ellul goes on, he says, humans were made to go six kilometers an hour and now we go a thousand. He was made to eat when he was hungry and to sleep when he was sleepy. Instead, he obeys a clock. He was made to have contact with living things and now he lives in a world of stone. He was created with a certain essential unity but now is fragmented by all the forces of the modern world. So one thing I can assure you, being led by the Spirit to make the most use of the time is not, is to suddenly be enslaved to a demanding taskmaster Father in heaven and a Holy Spirit that just gives us boundless energy to do more and more and more and more for God. That would be to say, making the most use of the time means measuring minutes. So we're always checking our clock. But there's another way to understand what Paul's saying by making the most use of the time, and that is not to understand it in minutes, but in moments. Not minutes, but moments. Think about the difference. Rather than asking, how can I squeeze the most 
out of the next 15 minutes that I have a little gap in my schedule for, I can say, what is right for the given moment? Not what maximizes the moment. Then I can start to ask, well, who am I serving in this moment? Whose will am I seeking to obey in this moment? What that shift does is it frees us from the domineering of getting more done or being more fruitful to say what the most, I don't even want to use the word, what the most right thing, what the most good thing, what the most maximal thing I can do right now is, be surrendered to someone's will. That is God's. That's why Paul says, knowing what is the will of the Lord. If we want to learn how to be filled with the Spirit, we got to first and foremost be surrendered to God's will. And the reason that's really important to state really plainly is because when, think with me for a moment, how do you envision your future? What is it that you're building your life towards? All of us are raised predominantly in this context, in a very achievement-oriented world. And so everything is possible for us. Every option is on the table. And so oftentimes, we feel like we have a path that's set in stone rather than a person that we are serving in our day-to-day -day life. And being filled with the Spirit, being led and directed by God with us, requires that we see our daily life as a relationship in which we are serving a master rather than a path or a ladder where we're trying to achieve a certain outcome. Because that one can totally cut us off from attention to God. The, the first, the one where we're surrendered in the moment, requires that we're aware of God. And friends, if the Spirit is willing to speak to us, if the Spirit is willing to lead us, I want to assure you, He is willing to lead you if you would simply pay attention. In fact, Holy Spirit um, is the very presence of God within us. And so if you've chosen to follow Jesus, you have connection in to Holy Spirit. I want that to be a simple assurance that Jesus has done the work to connect us into this reality. It's not ours to build. Eugene Peterson, the late 20th century pastor, says in his commentary on Ephesians in this very passage that the Holy Spirit is God present with us, making us personal participants in his work, empowering us to be present in all of his work. Everything in Scripture is livable. Holy Spirit is God's active presence, making us full-bodied participants, Spirit-breathing God's creation and salvation into our resurrection lives. Elsewhere, he puts it really plainly, the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. So what I want to free us from as we read this passage and, and here, make the most use of the time and um, live with wisdom is to simply say, pay attention. Pay attention to God. 
when you're sitting down for coffee with someone that maybe you met here during the meet and greet or at lunch, simply quietly reflecting before the Holy Spirit, Lord, what is your desire for this person? How can I serve your aims right now? It also has to do with how we choose to live and structure our lives. Now, what I'm not saying is don't have a plan. We should plan. We should seek to be stewards. But what we can't do is be enslaved to a calendar. We can't be enslaved to the clock. We can't even be enslaved to the expectations of people around us as though we are their servants and not servants of Christ. So I think this challenges what we so often say when someone asks us how we're doing, and we say, I'm busy. I'm busy. Might it be that being busy is our, our experience of being enslaved to making the most use of the minutes rather than making the most use of moments that God would call us to? Because if we're so busy that we're not available to God, it's not Jesus that we're following. So the invitation is to lay down everything that we think will lead to a successful life of achievement, prowess, regard in the eyes of the world, and surrender ourselves humbly to the one who saved us, loves us, and has brought us life to believe that he'll continue to do those things as we give more of ourselves to him. So let's be people who refrain from ever, and I will do it again, and I know you'll do it again, there will be plenty of mercy in the process, who refrain from using the word busy to describe us. We could say, I had a really full day. You know, that's, that's less of a word of enslavement than it is a description of how our day was. I think that's what we mean oftentimes, but we reinforce this notion that the busier we are, the more important we are. The same Jacques Ellul who told us about technology tells us how Christians ought to approach the moment. He says, Christians were never meant to be normal. We've always been holy troublemakers. I love that. Disrupting the status quo. We've always been holy troublemakers. We've always been creators of uncertainty, agents of, of dimension that's incompatible with the status quo. We do not accept the world as it is, but we insist on the world becoming the way that God wants it to be. And the kingdom of God is different from the patterns of this world. So if, if we want to be filled with the Spirit, if we want to grow in learning to walk in the way that God would have us, cross the geography of heaven in our everyday lives, it, a simple heart check each day to say, Lord, I want to surrender my day to you. I think I know how it should go in wisdom as a steward to be faithful but would you lead me in receptivity moment by moment when my plans need to get disrupted? So we surrender to God. But also, but also we seek to be soaked in the Spirit. Now, we get this simply from the start of this, this uh, I think it's verse 18. Let me see here. Yes, verse 18. 
And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Okay? Now, Paul interestingly tells us not to be drunk with wine, but in Ephesians, in Ephesus, the city that this was written to, the cult of Dionysius would throw massive drunken parties, believing that real human uh, life and joy was found in just giving ourselves over into the kind of environment that you and I have probably experienced at some point in your life, where we give ourselves over to the simple craving to check out, uh, to be enslaved by pleasure, whatever it might be. So what we need to hear here is not a moral command that simply says, hey, you Christians better not get drunk, which is often how we can approach these kind of injunctions in Scripture. Hey, here's a moral pressure to put on you. There's always more to what's behind what is right because what is behind what is right is also what's good. We should listen to Paul and not get drunk. Yep. But the language that's translated drunk tells us he's referring to more than merely alcohol consumption. It's the same word that is used for the process of soaking animal hides with oil in order to make them malleable to stretch into fabric or clothing. He contrasts the kind of soaking in alcohol with being filled or soaked by the Spirit. Two simple things that that does. We can relate this to alcohol. If you're like me and you've been intoxicated in your life, both pre-Christian days and post-Christ days, you're aware of what happens and why it's, it's attractive to run to something like alcohol. Right? It, it comforts you in your pain. It makes things that, are, things that are hard go away for a moment. The second one is, it feels like it draws something out of us that wasn't there. Right? If you're, if you're like me and you're a little bit uh, gun-shy in crowds, which sometimes people can't actually believe being in a crowd like this, I had to learn how to socialize with all of you. At first it was like, oh gosh, people, so many people, I don't even know what to do in a setting like this. I empathize with you introverts. But alcohol in a party, it kind of takes away the edge of embarrassment. It, it empowers us for a social environment in our eyes. So it comforts, it takes away pain, and it empowers or energizes us. But in the end, what does alcohol actually do? If you woke up the next day a bit hungover, some of you, maybe even that's this week. I've been there. You feel a bit more undone than empowered. That's the promise or the fruit of believing the promise of what the world offers us for comfort and empowerment. The same is true of caffeine. You ever been a daily caffeine drinker who gets to like three or four cups and then you try and let go of it? The headaches, you feel like you're just getting back to zero with the first one to three cups in the morning instead of actually taking over the edge into something that's positive. Same is true of prescription drugs. Same is true that we can, we can do it with food. We can do it with anything. That's what Paul's saying here is, don't dive into the promises of the world for things like comfort and empowerment because that's what the Spirit offers you. Rather than being soaked in those things, immerse yourself in God's presence. 
That's where you find comfort that actually brings healing. That's where you find energy and empowerment that actually allows for joy instead of undoing on the other side. There's a reason we feel like that when we rely on substance or experience in the world. Because apart from receiving those under the hand of God, always what, ha what happens is, is the undoing that's really just death and decay. It undoes us a bit more, and eventually we're addicted, and then we're in the bonds of death. And Paul says that's the opposite of the freedom, comfort, and empowering of the Spirit. So what does it look like for this being soaked in the Spirit? Well, Paul gives us a few simple ways to cultivate this kind of soaking in the Spirit. First one has to do with the way we talk. He says, speak to one another in the church, other followers of Christ, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. So, from this day forth, we shall live together as though we were in a musical. <laughs> Everything we say to each other must have cadence and song embedded in it. It's not what he's saying. But I had a moment this week where we were getting out of the car. We went for Adelaide's birthday. She turned three this week. And so we went to Chick-fil-A, got some Chick-fil-A. And I try and like enculturate my kids a little bit with music. And so I played a Sticks song for them over the holiday. Um, Come Sail Away. Anybody? Anybody? Glorious song, an anthem that will never be forgotten. And I, I turned it off and I said, kids, now you've been encultured. And Hudson, in the quickest moment, said, more like tortured. <laughs> and so, welcome to parenthood. Uh, real appreciation for being encultured and history doesn't come easily. But I tried that again. And um, you know the song? This will show off my diverse tastes in music. Uh, don't you worry, child. It's electronic. Don't you worry, don't you worry, child. For heaven's got a plan for you. So he played that song. And you want to know what happened when we got back in? I could hear little voices singing that song. God knows what he's doing. Being immersed in the invisible spirit is helped along as we speak out words that lift our hearts up to see Jesus, to remember what is hidden beneath our visible reality, that there is one who has laid his life down for us, that we are loved and not alone, that we live for him in the promises of his kingdom. So when Paul says, sing to each other, it's not just a task that's really religious. It's God knowing how he made us, calling us to be singers and songwriters, hymns and spiritual songs. It's not even just songs from the Bible, right? Here's the Bible telling us, sing songs not written by Bible authors. Because our hearts are stirred. Music catches our hearts and does something beyond what mere statements of fact can do. Next, besides the way we talk and sing around one another, the way we live 
toward God, giving thanks always and for everything. Here's the simple vision to have. If we want to be filled by the Spirit, soaked in the life of God, we need to remember not only that everything we have is a gift. Scripture says, what do you have that was not received? Think about how often we get really offended because we think, I earned this. I achieved this. Well, there's an element to where maybe you worked really hard. But at the end of the day, you were enabled to even work really hard. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I worked harder than any of them, speaking to the other apostles, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So if we have an entitled heart, we are out of the soaking of the Spirit. Live as those who have received from God everything that we have to be stewards and children, to enjoy good gifts God gives us, but to also use what we have in generosity toward others. But think about what this means even for moments of trial and difficulty. Paul doesn't put an asterisk here. There's no footnote in my text. He simply says, give thanks always and for everything. When we are immersed in the ocean of life with God, I want to assure you, he will always make sure that things end in blessing and goodness, even through sorrow, even through pain, because we know those things no longer have the last word. And so we might weep, but deep down, we can still have thankfulness toward God that secures us and brings us peace in those moments. Cultivating hearts of thankfulness puts us in the path of the flow of the Holy Spirit who wants to honor God as the great giver of every good thing. So we sing, reminding us and living in the joy of song. We cultivate thankfulness among us as recipients of those who have received everything we have from God and who works all things for our good. And then lastly, the way that we live with one another is affected by being filled with the Spirit. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This one is hard. Harder even than the other ones. Because what this means is, we live with a kind of posture toward one another in the church as those who do not seek to enforce our will on others. But as those who seek out service toward others. Submitting to one another. You might be structurally above someone else. Human order is a good thing. Leadership can even be, is supposed to be a good thing. And yet, even there, we submit ourselves to the needs of others seeking to serve and love them. The Spirit loves to empower and energize and even comfort through the difficulty when the people of Jesus seek to serve the needs of others and submitting themselves underneath them in service. Instead of trying to get other people to do just what we want them to do, You might even be right about something. But the Spirit will meet you in the midst of... Now, i, I got to kind of caveat that. Um, 
in the rightness of something, but serving someone else, knowing that what might be right, uh, you are leaving on the table. The Spirit can meet and move in the midst of that and even melt the heart of the other person through your submitting love to them. Does that make sense? So the way that we relate to one another is seeking a lower and lower status because even the Son of Man, Jesus, who also is the Son of God, came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We can't desire the power and presence of the Spirit without seeking to follow in both surrender and soaking ourselves in the presence of God the Spirit. That's why a couple weeks ago, when we read in Luke 11, Jesus saying, God's a good father. Even you who have evil intermixed in your hearts as fathers, love to give good gifts to your children. How much more will God give Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And here we see that God desires to fill us moment by moment, day by day, with Holy Spirit. Now, I want to help us to simply put it into practice, just as we have been doing the last few weeks. If you remember, our emphasis for this year is to learn to pray, and one of the ways that we've been seeking to learn to pray is by praying together, that it would become more and more natural. And so, really simply, a practical handle for us is to pray together right now over the next 10, 12 minutes, surrendering ourselves afresh to God and His will for us and inviting the Holy Spirit to more and more immerse us